Good morning, everyone in this time zone. Good afternoon, those following from Europe, and good evening to those awake, uh, sadly, in Asia at the moment. Welcome back to the Peterson Institute for International Economics. I'm the Institute's president, Adam Posen, and we are very happy to be bringing you an important discussion today by Olivier Blanchard and Jean Pisani-Ferry of their joint work with Thomas Philippon of NYU. I'm reading the title exactly, A New Policy Toolkit is Needed as Countries Exit COVID-19 Lockdowns. We've just published their new policy brief and today's event is to have them discuss their recommendations and analysis. Clearly, they are not epidemiologists, brilliant as they are, they are not forecasting when the safety is to move from lockdown to opening. But they are in the best spirit as they've always done and as policy economists at PIIE trying to think ahead to what is the next challenge. And particularly the balance when we know that it's not gonna be about just saving jobs and just preventing collapse as has been the right priority, but how to balance that with the restructuring that will happen in the economy and that must happen going forward in part because of the changes produced in response to COVID-19. We're delighted to have Jean Pisani Ferry with us. who will be speaking first this morning and presenting the results. John has joined us now as a non-resident senior fellow for the last six months after a long association with the Institute as the founding president founding director of Bruegel in Europe, of course, as a major part of the initial package of policies, President Macron in France came from Jean's pen, and Jean has been a significant contributor to European economic policy debates over the years. He also is the Tommaso Padaciopa chair at the U European University Institute in Florence. Joining him on this stage, this virtual stage, is Olivier Blanchard, the C. Fred Bergston Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute. Olivier, of course, was Economic Counselor and Director of the Research Department at the IMF for seven years, and he remains the Robert M. Solo Professor of Economics Emeritus at MIT, and he is the guiding light of applied macro for most of us. So let me turn it now over to Jean. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Um, good morning or good afternoon or good evening, everyone. And uh, thank you for, for the introduction. So the paper uh, deals with a, a simple question, which is, you know, we had during the lockdown fairly similar policy tools in place in various countries to deal with this uh, very unusual shock. Now the lockdown has ended or is ending. And the question we're asking is how should the policy toolkit be, toolkit be adapted? We're not going to deal with demand-side policy. Uh, we're going to say simply that demand-side policies have to play their role in full. We are assuming implicitly that they will do so, but we're concentrating on the, the, uh, the instrument that should substitute or complement the existing schemes uh, so the schemes that uh, aimed at protecting uh, firms and, and workers in various ways, they were uh, for workers, they were furlough schemes in Europe, there was a special unemployment benefit in the US. In all countries, we had for firms tax deferrals, loans, grants. Um, the plumbing was different, the generosity was a bit different, but the philosophy was the same. It was a philosophy of freezing the economy as it was before the shock. 
in order to be able to unfreeze it uh, after the shock. But as the, the lockdown uh, is ending, uh, there are a series of new questions arising. Uh, you know, how companies will restart, uh, how many workers will be brought back to work and how to make sure they are brought back to work if possible. Uh, some sector will have to shrink, some others will have to expand. And all that is taking place in a very uncertain, difficult environment uh, with uh, unemployment very high or very quickly rising, leverage, profitability is down, uncertainty is massive. So it's not the sort of very simple V-shaped uh, type of, uh, of shock that we, or some of us expected as we entered the lockdown, it's a more messy environment. And the question is what to do in this messy environment. Um, we think in general that policy should be uh, setting the incentive right. Uh, it should avoid um, ad hoc uh, interventions, multiple uh, specific, firm specific, sector specific, um, unprincipled uh, interventions. It should be based on sound principles, which is to promote reopening and jobs, to balance protection and reallocation, and to uh, prevent uh, avoidable bankruptcies. Um, so something that keeps some of the philosophy of the, of the, of the freeze, you know, don't do too much harm to your economy, but move towards uh, looking forward to, to changes and, and not preventing changes if they're, they're needed. Um, the fiscal resources uh, are not infinite. The administrative capacity is not infinite. So there's also the question of how to make use of limited resources in this type of environment. So again, uh, we're aiming at- uh, Jean, do you, want to, do you want to present your slides or not? Or are you yeah. just talking? No, because no, we, don't, we, we don't see your slides. You're not seeing the slides? No, we see you, which is very nice, but that's- okay. uh, I'm sorry, I thought, okay, good point. Um, oops. This is an opportune moment to remind people that their full policy brief is available for free download on www.piie.com. It's right there on the homepage. Please continue, Jean. Okay, so you're seeing the slides now, right? Yes. Are you? Yeah. Yes. So the proposal in a nutshell. Uh, so we're arguing in favor of two new uh, temporary uh, instruments. One is sector-specific wage subsidies. So to uh, deal especially with temporary productivity shocks, um, to favor reopening and, and jobs. We think that uh, in principle, there should be wage subsidies that help temporarily firms cope with the shocks while favoring rehiring, while favoring uh, moving workers back to full uh, activity. Um, and I'll go back to it in a minute. The second is um, a special debt restructuring procedure for SMEs that will uh, cope with the shock um, uh, incurred by those firms. The fact that they have, are exiting 
this price is more leveraged, in some cases excessively leveraged, in a situation where short-term outlook for, for profitability um, uh, can uh, be significantly reduced. Even though firms are viable in the long term, they may not be uh, uh, solvent uh, because of this excess debt. And so we think that since we are going to be dealing with mass problem of many firms being in this situation, there needs to be a contractual approach that's not going to rely on the government deciding which firm uh, has or, or has not um, the capacity to, to survive. Uh, a, a contractual approach that would, without hands-on involvement of, of government, uh, be providing the banks, which are the principal creditors, the right incentive to decide whether to close down or whether to restructure the, the debt of a particular company. So government uh, being a creditor of those companies because of the guarantees, because of the tax deferrals, uh, can speak as a creditor but we think that the government should speak as a creditor that also takes care of the uh, social value of the firm and the general economic interest, not simply as a private creditor. So those are the two proposals. Uh, the, let me start with the, then the, the measure taken, and I can be quick on that because I don't think that the, the, the core of what we want to discuss. For workers, as said, uh, we had different approaches in the US and in Europe. In the US, the focus was on providing supplementary uh, unemployment insurance and providing check to households, so protecting income, but not so much protecting the link between an employee and uh, his or her uh, employer. Uh, there are temporary layoffs, but uh, there are still layoffs. Uh, so even if there is an incentive to, to rehire, technically these people are unemployed. Um, and they are better protected as, 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 as regards the income that is unemployed. Uh, uh, in Europe, the approach has been different uh, under quite a series of different names. Um, we've had furlough schemes, uh, so keeping the link between the employer and the employee, but uh, providing um, uh, allowances to the um, to the firm so that the de facto, the largest part or the entire, entirety of the, um, of the wage is actually uh, taken charge of by the state. So workers stay with the firm, the link is not broken, but they actually don't pay or they pay a minimal part of the, of the wage bill, um, which is with, a, with a discount that corresponds to the, to the situation, so the, the, the worker gets a little less. Um, the firm is reimbursed by the, the state and the link is kept. And so a large part of the, the labor force can be you know, put idle while remaining legally uh, employee, but de facto uh, uh, being um, actually paid by the state. Just to give you a, a, an indication of the cost, in France we have um, so 0.5% uh, of GDP, uh, that's actually uh, you know, paid by the state to firms to keep their uh, workers uh, uh, actually uh, employees and, uh, and, and, and provide them the means of, of living. Schemes of this sort are in place in you know, the vast, vast majority of OECD countries. 
Now, for firms, the uniformity is, is larger. Essentially, everyone has guaranteed bank loans, uh, you know, different degrees of um, generosity, of coverage, different degrees of uh, um, conditions, of uh, you know, durations in general for the medium term, although in some cases it can be short term and renewable. Um, and on top of that, there are ad hoc deals for some industries uh, or some large firms. Uh, that's not the focus of what we want to discuss. Uh, and there are, as I said, uh, tax and social uh, insurance contribution deferrals or even consolidation for, for very small firms. And this uh, uh, results in uh, significant claims of the states uh, on, on firms. Um, in Germany, uh, there's something uh, special, which is uh, that the uh, firms can claim reimbursement of uh, at least part of the fixed cost incurred during lockdown. But this is very special and this does not exist in many, in many other countries. Um, so it's um, worth noting, uh, especially as we will discuss, uh, discuss the solution uh, going forward. So again, so details differ, but the philosophy is fairly similar. Now, uh, as we uh, move to, uh, the exit phase, um, the question is how to adjust incentives. And the incentive was on preservation. The incentives has to be on reopening. And the temptation is just to say, let's make the schemes that exist less uh, generous. Um, and so let's, let's reimburse less of the wage bill to the firm so that the firm therefore has an incentive to put the workers back to work. And uh, this is certainly right, but this neglect the fact that if the firm is facing a productivity shock, um, you're increasing the cost of labor at the time the firm has to cope with a productivity shock. So why productivity shock? Think of a restaurant. Uh, but this applies to many other industries. A restaurant in many countries can reopen serving meals on terrace only or serving meals if the distance between the tables is larger. So basically the restaurants will reopen um, with a capacity to serve a smaller number of meals while having probably the same number of people in the kitchen, perhaps a little bit less servers, but all that results in a productivity decline. This productivity decline in principle is temporary uh, because as sanitary condition will improve, the restaurant will reopen in a normal way. But in the meantime, it suffers a negative productivity shock. So uh, tightening the existing schemes is necessary uh, to you know, move away from this freeze um, uh, philosophy, uh, but to do it you know, in a too stringent way uh, would uh, probably result in uh, excessive layoffs. And excessive layoffs at a time when you don't want too many people to be put on the labor market because the reallocation mechanisms are not going to work well um, in a situation of high uncertainty and with uh, mass unemployment where employment agencies are completely overwhelmed by the number of applications. So you want sort of to err on the side of, of caution, and that's what we are uh, proposing. How? Um, 
in principle, if you know resources were infinite or large enough, you would uh, introduce an across-the-board wage subsidy, uh, temporary for this uh, period, for the uh, giving incentive to the reopening, to cover the fact that the social cost of, of labor uh, has uh, gone down significantly. So the private cost of labor, which is uh, the wage, uh, is, uh, is uh, significantly higher, and you want to reduce this, this gap. But that would uh, mean a very high fiscal cost. So what uh, we're saying instead is to do it either for SMEs, and in part that's uh, what the grant component of the uh, PPP does, uh, or to do it uh, more specifically for some sectors. So why sectors? Um, we tend to hate sectors. I mean, we as a macroeconomist, we tend to prefer horizontal policies. But this is a very sectoral crisis. Uh, this is a crisis that has hit certain sectors in a much more severe way than some others. And this is a crisis in which the government is telling uh, certain sectors, you're allowed to do this and not that, uh, or you're not al allowed to reopen at all, or you're uh, allowed to reopen in certain conditions. Um, so there is actually a sectoral policy in place. There is a sectoral sanitary policy. And what we're saying is that you should be matching this, uh, this sanitary policy with an economic policy. So giving uh, a wage uh, subsidy temporarily to the sectors that are most affected, um, which represent, you know, we took it in the French case, 49% of GDP. Uh, the proportion can be a bit different, but the list of sectors is uh, more or less everywhere the same. Um, the cost, uh, you can, uh, depending on the subsidy rate, you can play with the numbers. So you're coming up with a number that's, in our case, something like 0.8 to 1.8% of GDP. But the net fiscal cost is likely to be much uh, lower. Why? Because uh, what you're doing at present with the FOLA scheme is that you're uh, paying essentially the entire wage bill um, uh, of, um, of the company or individually. You're, an employee uh, is basically taken charge of entirely by, by the state. Now, if this employee moves to be uh, back to work, you're saving um, the, uh, the cost that was uh, paid by the state, and you're gaining the social security and taxes on the income of this employee. So the gain for the state is enormous. The marginal effect of having an employee moving back to work is enormous. And therefore, uh, if these wage subsidies have some effectiveness, the net fiscal cost is likely to be uh, much lower. Let me skip that in the interest of time. I can go back to it. Uh, and let me move to the firms. Uh, so as I said, um, again, we have the existing uh, scheme, which is loan guarantee. The loan guarantee as for uh, the uh, the furlough or the uh, scheme that protects the um, income of the employee, you want to uh, reduce it. Uh, so you don't want banks to be creating zombies. So you want to continue the loan guarantees, but uh, reduce the generosity or the coverage of the, of the guarantee gradually. But that's not going to be uh, enough to deal with the problems uh, that uh, some firms will exit this crisis with a deteriorated balance sheet. 
And here, what you want to do in principle is that you want to um, do a, a triage uh, by um, having three categories of firms, those that are perfectly fine, so they should just continue, those that are viable but are exiting this crisis with too much debt, so they're insolvent, and you want to restructure the debt um, so that with lower debt, they can, they can restart and actually thrive. And the non-viable ones, which are you know, not profitable in this new uh, state of nature. And for those uh, for which this is certain, you want certainly to close down this firm. You don't want to, pretend to, to prevent uh, reallocation. The problem is that to do this triage, you need to take individual decisions and you need to take individual decisions on very small firms and a very large number of very small firms. And the state doesn't have the administrative capacity to do so. It's not its business. And um, it, even if it had some capacity, it would be overwhelmed. At the same time, the private creditors, the banks, may not take the right decision because they will be basing the decision in principle on the private value of a creditor, disregarding the fact that in this type of situation, the social value of a firm can be different, can be higher than its, its private value. You don't want uh, this a temporary shock to result in you know, closing down too many companies that are uh, viable in the, uh, uh, in the future if um, they are getting some uh, debt uh, reduction. Uh, so you need to find a way out of this, um, uh, of this dilemma. And the way out of this dilemma is the following, uh, not to go through the usual procedure because they will be overwhelmed, but to have a, a, a contract with the banks. The banks, they are the, the institution that, that know the most about uh, SMEs. At least they know much better than the, the state. So the state could uh, uh, define a rule, a precise rule, telling the banks, you're going to take the decision uh, you as a creditor, you're going to decide whether to restructure or to close down uh, a firm that is in, in difficulty. But let it be clear, the state as a creditor, if you decide to take the firm to bankruptcy, the state is going to defend uh, its interest. It has some senior claims. The claims that are the tax claims, they are senior. It has some pari through claims uh, with the guarantees. So it's going to defend its, uh, its interest as a creditor. Now, if you accept to take a haircut on your claims, then the state will go along. Now, you're taking the decision. The state is not going to take any micro decision, but you banker, if you're deciding that this firm is viable after the restructuring, the state will go along and it will do even more. It will take a higher haircut than the haircut taken by the bank. And that's to reflect the, the, the fact that it attaches value to the survival of the, of the firm because of its uh, social value. So you know that there is a continuation premium and that this continuation premium is you know, the, 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 what the, the state gives in order to limit the uh, bankruptcies to what is unavoidable, to what is necessary, and to, at the same time, prevent the bankruptcy of, of viable firms. 
So there would be one decision maker, not two. There wouldn't be, you know, individual decisions taken by, by bureaucrats. Um, and, uh, and, and that's the, the, the way it should, it should work. We also discussing the paper whether some of those claims could be, um, um, state claims could be uh, transformed into some, some form of quasi-equity, but that's a minor point. Okay, so basically I'm, I'm done. Um, so the conclusions, you know, exit is a very delicate phase uh, because of the, of the productivity decline, because the risk on the demand side, because of the considerable uncertainty, uh, both as regards the sanitary condition and the, uh, you know, economic shocks uh, going forward. Uh, it's not a favorable period to uh, reallocation. So we're saying reallocation is needed and certainly will be in some cases uh, needed, but uh, let's proceed with, with caution. Let's avoid excessive reallocation in a situation where it's unlikely to work properly. So we're proposing a strategy. So on the one hand, gradually tighten the access to existing uh, instruments, existing support instruments and have those new uh, supply side instruments introduced. Um, again, I'm not discussing that, but uh, we're very clear that this uh, should go hand in hand with a very active uh, demand policy. Uh, what uh, we think would be uh, positive with this approach is that, um, well, first of all, the clarity of having uh, defined instruments rather than a series of uh, ad hoc uh, type of uh, approaches to, you know, dealing with problems one by one. Second, the fact that we are having two instruments for two problems that are conceptually different, the problem of the productivity shock and the problem of the, the uh, excessive debt uh, resulting from the, the lockdown are two different problems. So hard to cope with those two problems with a single instrument. We think that's uh, it's a fairly adaptable scheme, so you can you can adjust the parameters uh, depending on the overall conditions, and you can announce pre-announce how you will be doing so. Um, that's um, uh, also an approach that minimizes uh, resort to administrative capacity and fiscal uh, resources. And finally, we think that to to have a predetermined set of instruments uh, rather than an ad hoc policy has a chance of minimizing the risk of capture, which is pretty high in this kind of situation. So thank you, let me end here. Thank you, Jean. Could you uh, take your screen off so we yeah. can see your face again? Um, this was fantastic. Uh, it's great to have you and Olivier and Thomas thinking hard about basic principles and guidelines. And as you've said, and work you've done with Jean Cohen, Jeremy Cohen, it's a ton of established the differences between the programs uh, in the advanced economies is very minimal. And so thinking about the similarities of principles in lock, in opening up is I think also equally valid. Before I turn to our, our group for hands raised and preferably by the, uh, the Zoom chat feature, um, let me ask one question, which is you were very thorough at, at intervals about documenting the running cost of some of the current programs. I may have missed it, but I don't get a sense that there was a running cost of what it would mean for the government 
to be uh, taking a haircut on, on loans. Did I miss that? Or do you have an order of magnitude estimate of what that will be? Or is that highly variable country to country? Um, it's, it's obviously very hard to, you know, get a sense of how many bankruptcies it would be and uh, what would be the cost, how large a haircut will have to be on average, etc. Uh, there are some estimates um, that uh, have started being made. We didn't make these estimates. Um, what I think we can say is that the policy we're proposing of uh, having a sort of, a, you know, early systematic approach to the problem is likely to minimize the cost with respect to the natural tendency, which is to postpone, to extend more credit, and then to have, you know, to incur uh, larger costs down the road. But I agree that's not a very satisfactory response. No, I didn't, uh, no, but it's just in, in subsequent work, it does have to be addressed because the, the scale does matter. So, and just picking up on your last point, um, going with, again, staying on the firm side rather than the labor market side, um, what, what do you think, is there a different role for bank supervisors um, in this environment, or is this just sort of taken out of their hands um, at this point? I mean, is that another tool in the toolkit that should be employed here? We're not, I mean, we're not proposing anything having to do with supervision. We're just saying the state, the, the, the treasury has to uh, say, uh, you know, as a creditor, I mean, it's basically tax claims and, and, and guarantees. Right. So because of, not because of anything having to do with supervisory consideration, but because of the micro value of preserving uh, firms, uh, this is what we're proposing uh, to, the, to the bank. So I think we are sort of distinguishing completely it from, from the supervisory consideration. But Olivier, you may wish to uh, jump in. Yeah, I was about to ask Olivier if he had anything he wished to add. If you give me two minutes, I mean, I thought Joel gave a, a great presentation. But the point I want to insist on is that, I mean, on each measure, we can discuss how it should be done. The, the purpose was really to uh, deal, to think about the, the architecture of any program which is going to deal with the protection reallocation uh, trade-off. And, and there, uh, it, I think the two elements which are absolutely central and very specific to this crisis is the very high unemployment rate, which means that if you become unemployed, very hard to get a job for most people. And the, the level of uncertainty, both about the, the, the productivity shocks that John talked about, uh, which will go away when physical distancing disappears, but when is it? We don't know. And then the more the deeper changes in, in, in the economic structure. So in that context, we thought about what needs to be done. And I think the first thing is you need to protect workers for much longer. So the programs which are going to end, at least formally, for example, in this country, have to be continued. I mean, it's clear that you have to be very generous with workers for a while, and that's going to be costly. Uh, and then on the firm side, the idea is to have the right playing field, namely to try to get the firms to take the right social decision. And here we basically focus on two things. The first, the first is wage subsidies, because if you put somebody to, uh, if you basically lay off somebody, his productivity at being unemployed is basically zero and the quality of getting a job is very low. So wage subsidies, especially for the sectors like restaurants, which would die 
if it didn't help, and then had to be completely recreated in 18 months or so, right? And then there always no guarantees because the financial system is just not going to do the job, the degree of uncertainty is enormous. So you do put these two things, and then some firms will still not be able to make it, they're either insolvent or unviable, and then the restructuring part comes in. But I wanted to insist on the fact that, you know, this is a holistic thing. Uh, Jean rightly insisted on the two aspects which are new, which is rate subsidy and the restructuring process. But I wanted to insist on the architecture. I'll stop there. Thank you. Uh, nobody was fighting with you, but I'm glad you insisted. Um, <laughs> let me turn first uh, in the raised hand, uh, Edmund Phelps, please. I've unmuted you, Ed, at least I thought I did. Keep hitting unmute. It's not letting me. Jessica, could you please unmute Professor Phelps? There we go. Okay, sorry. Um, thank you, Adam. Jean, that was absolutely brilliant, stunning. Uh, and, and so one, I have one very short comment and one very short question. Uh, my comment is, in the U.S., I'm not sure that we have the competence to execute all this. It sounds very difficult, very hard. Um, my question is this. Do you have any idea what the fiscal deficit will be uh, as a result of all this? Um, I, I don't have an antipathy towards all fiscal, all public debts. I, I, I can assure you of that, but I don't regard the public debt as absolutely costless. And, and I, I wonder whether uh, we will be running into some problem in that respect. Yeah, I, I can take it, but perhaps Olivier wants to no? Okay, Olivier. I'll, I'll go first and then John will say something. I think the administrative aspects are essential and uh, I'm struck at the difference between Europe and the US in that respect. So the, the partial uh, unemployment scheme that has been used in Europe uh, is both a good idea and it has worked infinitely better than the distribution of unemployment benefits in the US. Part of the reason we have in the US lifted the, uh, the lockdown too early, I think there's no doubt in my mind, came from the fact that many people had not received the unemployment checks of the household checks. In France, in Europe in general, it has been done much better. I think we have to be very aware of the administrative constraints. Now, in the new phase, the issue is going to be, I think, on bankruptcies, on insolvability, and using uh, the usual methods are, is going to create a complete mess, and that's why we insisted on these on these methods that uh, maybe will simplify the process. On that, Ned, you you may know my views, which is I don't think that is a catastrophe, but I surely worry about that as well. I think that the levels of that are going to be high. I've concluded in other work that uh, we can probably sustain them, so money is not free. But at this stage, it seems to me, when we think about the trade-off between protecting workers now with unemployment benefits or having a bit more debt, it's still at the margin. The thing to do is not uh, to decrease the generosity of unemployment benefit, except when it's excessive, which is in some places in the US. The priority should still be on spending, uh, but being aware that there is probably uh, some long-run cost, not catastrophic, as, as you know, I believe. But it's fair. Um, rather than have John, sorry, rather than have you go, we have a lot of questions, so I'd prefer to just keep it moving. Uh, I'm going to alternate between the Q&A and the, and the people raising hands. 
From the Q&A, Rich Miller of Bloomberg asks, given the institutional and other factors already in place, which reason US-Europe is better positioned to hew to the policy principles you lay out in your paper for the unprecedented economies? This obviously independently goes down much the same road Ned Phelps did. John, do you want to say a few words about that? Yeah, I mean, the, the things have started moving. I mean, you know, you have, you have plans here and there, uh, you have sectoral plans, you have uh, um, decisions uh, have taken. I think it's still time to sort of put some general ideas that obviously when they go into practice, it's going to be adapted. But I'm struck by the fact that, you know, government had a relatively clear idea of what they wanted to do in the, uh, in the lockdown phase. Uh, the question of what should be done in this exit phase is much, much more uncertain. Um, we're having among economists a, a big debate on the extent to which uh, we should push for reallocation. Some people say, oh, this is, this is a change that's uh, introducing uh, irreversible uh, uh, change in the structure of the economy. So reallocation shouldn't be presented, prevented. Some other people are saying, uh, no, uh, some of the businesses would restart exactly in the same way as they did before uh, when, they, when the sanitary crisis is over. And governments are essentially running uh, after uh, you know, problems to fix problems as they arise. And the risk is that it's going, and going back to the fiscal question, you know, to, to try to fix the problem of each sector one after the other without having principles is likely to cost quite a lot of, of money and to demand uh, excessive, um, I mean, to, to put excessive demands on administrative capacity. So I think it's uh, to have a principled approach, uh, even though it has to be adapted, is, is the right way to go. Can I? Yeah, can I, can I come in quickly again, which is that uh, Jean, what John insisted on, I think is absolutely first order, which is the degree of reallocation which is going to be needed. And so you want measures which can be adjusted over time so that if reallocation is really needed and there are vacancies and people can find jobs, you can basically uh, reduce the wage subsidies, you can decrease the loan guarantees fairly quickly. And uh, I think the kind of, uh, of, of suggestions that we make allow, allow for that. It's exactly the same thing as on the, on the health side, you know, how countries or states in the US decide to go from phase one to phase two. To I think it's in the same spirit, you want something which allows for more reallocation if it can be done without too much pain. I think it's absolutely essential to have these, these adjustments all the time, have the right structure and then have the adjustments all the time. Thank you. Um, now turning to Jonathan Portis from King's College London. Again, I'm trying to unmute. There you go. Um, okay. Um, hi, um, thank you very much for that, um, uh, John and Olivier. Um, uh, I thought, I mean, clearly the motivation for looking at new policies is that this is not going to be a simple V-shape. We're simply not going to go back to the old normal. Um, and therefore, some degree of reallocation will be required. Um, but I don't see that there's anything in these policy proposals that directly addresses the issue of facilitating, facilitating reallocation 
as opposed to preserving where possible some of the businesses which we want to survive. And now obviously that's necessary, but don't you also need policy levers that are actually designed to facilitate reallocation, in particular, some form of wage subsidy scheme for people not to stay in their present job, but to um, move to um, either a new firm or a sector that is expanding. And of course, it follows directly from your assumption that macroeconomic balance between supply and demand is going to be maintained somehow, that if there are sectors that are shrinking, then there will be sectors that are expanding. And I think it therefore follows that in your model, it should be optimal to subsidize something, net job creation, job moves, or, or whatever, in order to smooth that reallocation process. Um, you know, for, in one possible way of doing this would be to have some sort of incentive compatible mechanism that let workers uh, choose between a wage subsidy in their old job or a wage subsidy in some new job or perhaps a retraining grant. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, Olivier Jean. I'll, I'll start and I, I, I'll plead guilty. It's true that we have focused more probably on how to make sure that the sectors like restaurants and so on can survive because it would be very stupid to have all of them disappear and reappear in, in 18 months, assuming the vaccine is there. So we focus very much on that. We, we have a, a stick as opposed to a carrot aspect, which is that it's fairly clear that the unemployment benefits in some cases have been too generous. And so we're, we're basically suggesting kind of going back to the normal schedule of unemployment benefits with an extension in time, but replacement rates, which are less than 100%. So this will give some incentives to workers. But after this, it's true that we basically have said, well, the sectors which basically need to hire will hire, and this will happen, but we're not going to do anything particular for them. Um, maybe we should have thought about it, and Jean may have thought about it, so I'm going to give him the, the floor. Now, one thing I, I would uh, would certainly consider, I mean, you, I think your, your point is well taken. I mean, if we're saying the social cost of, of, uh, of labor is low, this implies across the board. And so we, we said that, but didn't draw the full consequences. One thing I would consider uh, certainly is, um, uh, you know, support to hiring of, of new entrants into the, the labor market, because we have a generation arriving, a cohort arriving, uh, who, conditions would be dire and you, you want uh, them to sort of get a chance um, to, to be hired and, and that would probably be a, you know, a limited uh, but relatively powerful way of um, uh, responding to, to your question which is, which is obviously broader. But I'll add something, I mean, it is one of the reforms, I think one of the good reforms that the French president uh, had started is the reform of professional training. It seems to me that's exactly the case for, for, for doing it right. So this is not a reform which was put in place because of COVID, but in a case like this one, being basically ready to train people in the sectors where there are going to be jobs uh, can be done better. Hopefully will. Thank you. Uh, I'm now turning on the Q&A to Raquel, Professor Raquel Fernandez from NYU. She writes, do you think that these policies should be modified in any way to deal with the possibility of a second lockdown in the next six months? I think the answer is definitely yes. And that's where the flexibility comes in, which is that uh, you can basically, you know, what we have now is protection. 
And what we're suggesting is going from protection to reallocation by giving some incentives. But the, the growth incentives is very much based on, on, on the wage subsidies and the, uh, and the loan guarantees. If we have a second wave, then on the economic side, we can basically freeze the, the adjustment, you know, keep the protection, put more weight on protection, less on reallocation, and reopen when the second wave is gone. So again, I think that we think of these two tools, the degree of wage uh, subsidies and our flow guarantees as tools you use as the economy progresses, either because of economic dynamics or, or health uh, virus dynamics. Uh, I'm now turning to Carolyn Atkinson of the Peterson Institute Board of Directors. Caroline. Thanks very much. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. So first of all, terrific work. And thanks also to the Peterson Institute for doing it. Uh, I share Ed Phelps concern about administrative capacity, particularly in the United States. And I had two questions on that basis. One is, uh, in the US, of course, a lot of jobs are being lost at the local and state government level now. Uh, so what do we do about that? It's, that would be a strange set of jobs to subsidize directly, but maybe uh, that should be an additional piece for the US through federal grants. Uh, and then the other point is that we discovered with the PPP program here that Many small, very small businesses do not have banking relationships. And so leaving the restructuring to the banks wouldn't work for them. Now, we may just think, well, that's just too bad. They're too small and um, they're likely to be the kind of company that or firm that will restart. But I wonder if there is a big difference between the US and Europe in the degree of uh, continu continuous banking relationships that make the banks a good, a better tool in the U.S. for this new restructuring. I mean, in Europe than in the U.S. Thanks, uh, Carolyn. I'm surprised. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated, but surprised by the second fact, which is I would have thought that you know any entrepreneur, even auto entrepreneur, would have some checking account. Uh, I find striking that uh, some some businesses will have absolutely no relation to a bank. So that's all which is needed, right? Uh, so if you tell me that many, many small, small firms do not have that, then indeed it's an issue for us, for the logic of what we propose, and I surely don't have a simple solution. Uh, on the transfers to, I mean, the issue on states is basically the lack of, uh, of, of, of a system to transfer to states in our form so that they can function. So that's not an issue which is happening, which is uh, relevant for Europe. But in the US, it's fairly clear that uh, the fiscal programs have to have larger transfers to states. Would be insane uh, to lay off uh, for uh, for contractual reasons uh, state workers. So that's uh, it's an issue at the federal state level, uh, which has to be repaired, obviously. But it's specific to the US. Again, I for. No, I, I, my reaction was the same. I mean, we do have some businesses without a banking relationship, but they are quite special type of businesses, like what you trade over the, the corner. Um, and even them, I suppose they have some bank accounts. Well, I mean, my, my question is that would be an issue for you know, the informal sector. 
uh, in Turkey in places like this. But I, I cannot believe that in France, uh, the, the entrepreneurs will not have some relation with some banks. Maybe that's not enough to for the bank to do the work. But they, Caroline, if you have numbers, I would love to they, see they, they, they would be an issue of, of trust. I mean, you know, the relationship between the banker and the small businesses is difficult. I mean, they are, you know, they, they, they are always, the small businesses are always complaining about the banker. But um, in this case, we would sort of, you know, provide a sweetener uh, because the state would come uh, and say, okay, I'm, I'm willing to, you know, take a, take a cut and take a, a higher cut. So that would sort of, you know, I think perhaps help the negotiation between the banker and the, um, and the firm. Thank you. Uh, I now have from the Q&A, Robert Donner, does the private sector, i.e. the legal system, have the capacity to deal with the required restructuring and bankruptcies? And are there ways to economize on bankruptcy restructuring resources, perhaps by package restructuring plans? Again, I know you two were writing at the level of principles, but as you can see, there's always implementation questions as well. I think the idea is simplify relative to what would happen if there was if it was the usual procedures which were taking place. Whether the simplification is enough, uh, we don't know. All we can say, and then you really would have to go into the details, into the into the weeds. Uh, all we're saying is that we're reducing the number of creditors uh, conceptually to one, one bank, which basically can assume what the other creditor will do. So it simplifies the the process a bit, whether it simplifies it enough, I do not know. Uh, that's probably, you know, uh, dependent, uh, it's different in different countries. Uh, and we think more, say more. Yeah. You know. Obviously the process, when we say it's a sort of quasi-automatic, it's not entirely automatic. I mean, you need to, you, 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 you know, it's not a formal, contract that uh, just has to be signed on by the, the bank and then automatically um, the, the state takes a haircut. But it would be simplified to the, to the degree possible. And I think it would help a lot with respect to the existing procedures. We have a follow-up from Carolyn Atkinson and Ted Truman both, which I think is, is well taken. That the issue isn't that the banks don't have, that the small medium enterprises don't have checking accounts. The issue is that there are a number of small businesses that don't have lending relationships. You know, they're working out of family capital, credit cards, things like that. Um, again, we'll get you the numbers, we'll think about it. But just to say, you don't have to respond unless you want to. But, yeah, uh, no, but if, you know, if they don't have, if they haven't borrowed, then there's not an issue. I mean, they, they do what they want, right? And the issue of insolvency only happens if you actually owe something to somebody? No, because you can owe your credit card company, you can owe the second mortgage on your home, which you used as a form of, of, of business credit, which is what most small entrepreneurs in the US do. And so you can say, well, it's infeasible to deal with that. And so the micro businesses are out of luck, just as the, the large size businesses are not covered by this program. That's fine. But it, it, it is worth pointing out as Caroline and Ted do, and I'm taking a little further, that at least in the US, there are a lot of micro businesses where it, they don't have access to bank lending and they've used other forms of credit and they will have liquidity and solvency problems. And there may be nothing to do about that, but let's, let's at least acknowledge that. 
Um, okay, I'm now turning to Jerry Caprio of Williams College. Jerry? Uh, yes, thanks very much. Uh, great presentation. I was just wondering uh, uh, if uh, Jean or, or Olivier could say a little bit more about their reference to equity and quasi-equity options. And had they thought about um, uh, using warrants or government somehow getting uh, upside on any of the uh, uh, viable firms? You know, stuff that The context is uh, many things the state can do to help restructuring. One thing it can do is basically, you know, something which is fairly standard is to become an equity holder rather than debt holder. Now that's possible when the firm is publicly owned and then you can actually get, get equity. And that happens with uh, medium size or, or, or large, large, large firms. Uh, that's clearly not a possibility for SMEs. And so one possibility is basically for the state to become a pseudo equity holder uh, owner by basically saying, okay, I become an equity owner and you'll pay me in the form of taxes later uh, if you make profit. And that seems to be something which can be done. Uh, uh, there, are, there are issues with this, which is to, for the state to do this, they often it would turn from being a senior creditor when it's a tax deferral uh, to an equity holder, which is uh, not as attractive. But that's in some cases, it might be a simple way of getting the claims of the state to be transformed into some form of equity. This is what we had in mind. Great. Thank you. Jean? No, that's fine. Uh, all right. That seems to be it for the moment for questions. Uh, this is obviously a very rich topic and is a profound rethink. Going once to either Q&A. Yes, Richard Portis of London Business School, please. I've unmuted you, at least I've tried. Richard, stop touching the button. You getting me out? We are, we are, we are. Very good. Very good. Um, I, I want to to insist some of the practical difficulties here. Sorry, sorry Richard, you, you should unmute something because there's an echo. All right, let's see whether this is gonna work. Right. Can you hear me now? Yes, thank you. No, you're not hearing me now. Yes, we, we are. Um, let's try again. You're hearing me now? Yes. Yes. All right, uh, the uh, technology is, uh, it's complicated when your Zoom connection is unstable. Um, the, the, you know, you can't, you've got these two categories of firms, one of which is going to be, re the other is which you're going to be put out of business. Um, if there's structuring or if they're being put out of business, there are contractual relationships. It's, uh, you know, that have to pass through the courts in most cases. The creditors are not just the second mortgage, et cetera. The creditors could be suppliers. For example, the creditors could be bondholders, medium-sized enterprises at least, um, issue in the U.S. certainly, and to some extent in Europe, issue bonds. They're high-yield bonds. They're risky. And, you know, they can be defaulted on, but um, that all raises, as I say, contractual issues that must inevitably come before courts. 
mustn't they? And the court system is just not, in the countries that I'm familiar with, um, uh, the many, in many of those countries, the system is simply not able to deal with that. So how do you deal with it? Well, yes, we, we were not clear. I mean, there's always, at the end, a court involved. I mean, it's not a unilateral decision by creditors to do something, but uh, the court has to approve. The only thing we do, and you're completely right that there might be a, a larger set of creditors, uh, all we're doing is basically simplify by taking one creditor out of the picture by the state basically saying, if you do this, we'll do that. And that simplifies uh, the process. And for the numbers we looked at, uh, the size of the claims of the state relative to the size of the claims of the banks were such that, you know, this was a fairly substantial simplification. But you're completely right. You still have the supplies, you still have the consumers with bought and not received. You have all these issues. So courts will be involved. We just think that this will simplify things a lot, hopefully so. Uh, we can't tell. We, in some back of the envelope numbers in France, which suggested that the number of bankruptcies would be twice as large as the usual numbers in the coming months. Uh, that might simplify things enough that maybe can be handled by the courts. That's, but you're completely right. I mean, we, we have a simplified thing, but now it's all simple. The bank takes the decision, we're done. It's still much more complex than that. Yeah, uh, Richard, uh, you, you, I mean, basically, you don't want to overwhelm the court with, uh, you know, five employees or 10 employees firms. Um, uh, you want them to be able to deal with uh, complex um, issues of bankruptcies that they have to take care of. Uh, and even in this case, if you have a scheme uh, on the principle of which uh, there is uh, you know, clear commitment on the part of the state, um, and uh, sort of implicit uh, or explicit agreement with the bank, it simplifies things considerably. So I think that's what you want to achieve. I mean, that, you know, even if you go through the, the, the courts, you're, you're simplifying things, you're shortening the, the procedure. As regards the supplier's credit, that's precisely what you don't want to touch in this type of situation, right? Because if you start uh, restructuring uh, you know, suppliers' credits, you're creating a chain reaction that uh, that's dangerous. I mean, suppliers' credits are, are significant in some countries. I mean, in, at least in my country, they are, they're very significant. But that's, that's a big danger of this type of situation. All right. Thank you very much. So thank you all for engaging in various ways to take the question of the principles of great insight that Olivier and Jean have put together and how we might see them in practice across different economies. I will not insist, but I will repeat uh, the main points that Jean and Olivier, I think, have profoundly put forward, that the combination of productivity and demand shocks and sectoral restructuring require a new set of tools, that you have a labor market issue in a time of high unemployment and temporarily, we hope, diminished productivity, and you have a firm reallocation problem, and they have broadly suggested a similar program of approach to think about lock, the opening of lockdown as we all thought about going into lockdown. I'm grateful for their creative thinking coming out from the Peterson Institute, and thank you all for joining us today. The discussion will continue, and of course, their publication is available online right now. Thank you.